Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at GT Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Morning to you. So glad to be here. I've missed you. Uh, me and my wife, Trina, and our kids, we've all been on holidays for two weeks, so no emails, no phone, no nothing really. And as you can tell by the burnt nose, I've seen some sun. I just embraced it at this point. Don't even worry about sunscreen. Don't even care anymore. Just red. It's going to be burnt. It's going to peel. It's what happens to me every August. So deal with it. Okay? Because I am. It's great to be with you. It really is. And I, like I said, I really have missed you. Um, we're in a series in Acts, and we have really chugged so well along. I've heard such great story and testimony from just as we've kind of pursued this all the way. I think it's dating back, dating back to May. And so we are in week, like, I don't know, 48 or something, and, and we're going to keep going, and, and no shame. Um, to kind of take you back for a moment, because if you're new, um, once again, welcome to you. So glad you're here. You're jumping into a great spot. It's a great spot. But to kind of help you kind of see where we've been, Acts, we kind of broke into three parts. The first part being the promised Holy Spirit, or the power of the gospel we titled it, part one, was the first five or six weeks where we just talked and preached with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. We covered Acts 1, and Jesus actually even says, like, it is good for you that I go so that the advocate can come. He's saying, I'm one person here at this time, but if I go, the Holy Spirit can come and can be with many at once. And so he actually says it's a good thing. We see Acts 2 and Stephen, and we, we really focus on the power of the gospel, which is the Holy Spirit. The next 10 chapters or so, we kind of looked at the growth of the gospel, the, the birth of the early church and Paul's mission, like missionary journeys and, and the different places he went. We walked through how Paul would kind of go through this journey of going to a town and preaching at the synagogue and getting kicked out and then he'd go to this next spot and get kicked out and we really followed his journey. And now we're in part three as Chris, kind of, Pastor Chris introduced to us last week. We have the power of the gospel, the growth of the gospel. And now in part three, we, we're coming to the end of Acts and, and we're coming to the end, and Paul's coming to the end of his journey, of his missionary story, of his church planting moments. And he's coming to the end, we're coming to the end. He sees the end in sight. He knows in his life, in his calling, that there is a cost to the gospel. And that's kind of the next part three. The next few chapters, the next few weeks or so is the cost of the gospel. And I don't want us to, to just gloss over that. Because Acts 22 to 25 are hard days, years even for Paul. He goes from trial to trial to trial. He goes from the Sanhedrin to Felix and all these different places. And then in this one moment, in Acts 26, where I want to spend most of all of our time today, really, I want to focus on one trial. One specific trial that Paul has uh, with King Agrippa. And we're gonna, I'm going to give you some detail of who that is in a moment. But this, this scene to me is like a scene out of a movie. It really is. Like it is... It is something, there's so much drama, it's exciting, it's riveting. Like, I don't, again, I don't know if it's just the way that I read the Bible or read things in general, but I, or, or it's just, like I said, we've been in this book of Acts for 412 days. I don't know. Whatever it is, I read this and I think, man, there is like, this is exciting, this is riveting, this is like, there's something always happening, there's like, dun, 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 like a lot of those moments, you know? Actually, on our holidays, me and Trina got to do this very thing. We got to do something we never do. With a seven, five, and one half year old, I don't know who has the time, but we went to a movie. No, no, hold on. A matinee, right? I don't know who has the time to see a movie at 3.15, but I did one Saturday, and so we did. And not just any movie, not just like some, 
movie. We went to the one where they have the, the, like the reclining chairs and not just the ones that like teeter, <laughs> which is really annoying, like the like full on. My feet were above my head at one point. I couldn't even see Trina, didn't know where she, it was so, I almost took a nap, but then I was like, naps are weird. So I just watched this movie in this recliner. I'm just living my best life. And you know what the best part about movies are? Trailers. Anyone else? Oh, I, could, I would actually pay for a movie ticket and then just go into the start of movies just to watch the trailers. I know they're the same, but I'll do it. I would do that. We should do that for a date. Just watch trailers for like two and a half hours. Trailers are the best, aren't they? Because you get so much drama in like two minutes. Your heart, it's like, explosion. Oh, he's dead. No, he's not. Funny, quirk line. The train. And then the movie's titled so poorly. When did movies get titled so poorly? The train to Philly. It's like, what? That's just, that's the title? You know what I'm saying? It, there's just so much drama in it, and there's so much action in it, and there's so much happening in a trailer. And friends, that's how I read this trial. There is so much action. There is so much drama. There is so much controversy. There's so much insecurity. There's so much hunger for power. There's all this crazy stuff happening, and I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to gloss over it because, and Chris preached a great message last week, but there's something I think there's a lot of nuance in this specific trial. And so I want to give you a brief history lesson and then we're going to jump into it. King Agrippa II is actually in the line of Herod. The same Herod, the godfather of Herod clan was Herod the Great, the same Herod that like wanted Jesus dead when he was born, that Herod. Okay. Then after him was Herod Antipas, who ruled during the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. And he is the one who actually had John executed in Mark 6. And he is someone who was at Jesus' trial, funny enough, in Luke 23. Herod Agrippa I then comes next, and he was kind of this ruler over Judea for a few years. And he's the one who had James executed. We read about that in Acts 12. You can tell already that Herod and the church and the followers of Jesus and Jesus himself did not mesh. They did not connect. So Herod Agrippa II was only 17 when his father, Herod Agrippa I, died. He was in Rome. Um, He was very favored by the emperor at this point. So the emperor actually kept him in Rome for a long time, then makes him a ruler in this kind of Syrian kingdom and actually gives him supervisional like duties of the temple in Jerusalem. It's a big deal. What's funny is that King Agrippa gives up his authority but keeps his title. And so he doesn't have a lot of authority. He's not really helping anyone, but he's known as King Agrippa II. And he tries even at one point to kind of help the the relationship between the Jews and and, and the Romans, but he was very unsuccessful in it. And he was actually expelled by his Jewish subjects. And so he lived out the rest of his life in Rome, and he was the last of his line. This is the person that Paul faces in his trial. And that's why King Agrippa is kind of a funny, I mean, not funny, but it's almost an insulting title to many of the Jews. Because King Agrippa is a Jewish king. He's given power by the Romans. He doesn't actually have it. It was, it, was, it was more of a way for the Jews to feel like they had control and sovereignty in a nation that they were clearly, clearly oppressed in. And so in this moment where we find ourselves in the story of Paul throughout all the trials, kind of after where Chris was last week, Governor Festus asked Paul if he'd be willing to stand trial in Jerusalem. But Paul knew that he had like no chance if that was the case. So he actually invokes his right as a Roman citizen. This is important. A Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. That's in Acts 25, verse 10 and 11. So Festus at this point has no choice but to send him to Caesar. But what's so funny about this is Festus has nothing on Paul. So he's like, he's, he's caught in this hard place where he's like, okay, 
I literally have to send him to Caesar. He is an innocent man. I could release him, but then the Jews will revolt. I could send him to Caesar with nothing and look like a total fool. Hmm. And he's, you know what I mean? He's caught in this, here we have our story. You see what I'm saying? Here we have our moment. And so he has this incredible tension. And then wouldn't you know it, cue the music for our trailer. King Agrippa walks in and says, hey, everyone, because guess what? Festus is married to King Agrippa's sister. Plot twist, right? You know what I'm saying? And so his, he and he's, hey, brother, what's up? Visiting for the holidays, are we? And he walks in, if you will. He shows up in his town. They discuss Paul's case because he's like, oh, I think, I think in this moment, Festus is thinking, Agrippa might have something to say here about this. This is more of a religious dispute about the resurrection of Jesus. That's not a, why am I even involved? And so he actually tries to like, coax, kind of coaxes Agrippa into it and talks to him about it. And Agrippa, of course, in his pride and ego and arrogance says, I'd like to meet this Paul. And so Festus thinks, this is awesome. I'll set it up. We'll meet in the morning. How about that? And so this is where we have it. The stage is set. These are the characters. You see the backstory. I'm sure you must feel the tension. Here comes the trial, which I believe, by the way, is a masterclass by Paul in defending his faith and defending his name. A masterclass in the way he approaches this. So let's read what he does. This is Acts 25. Really quick, some context going into it. Starting in verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, that's his wife, and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. You can just see it, right? Make way for King Agrippa. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, you can see the moment happening. He walks in all smug. He's got his sings. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving the death of death, excuse me, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing to definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him all before you, and all before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa. So that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. You think? Like, you know? He's playing to his ego. He's, he's, he's playing to his invisible title. And, and then it says this in Acts 26, jumping right into it. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa. I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted, because you are so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also into Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. We learn here, although I'm sure you've known by this point, that Paul's integrity was unmatched. Unmatched. He, he wasn't always right. That's important to know. Of course, he made tons of mistakes. He admits that. But he always did what he believed to be was accurate. He always stuck to his convictions. 
As we've walked through Acts, I'm sure you've seen glimpses of Paul's character of steadfastness, of love, of, of you know, intelligence, of courage, of bravery, of loyalty. He, but here he takes time to defend his name, to remind everyone of his integrity to the Jewish practices. And I think this is key, because listen, I know we're talking about Paul, like, yes, the one who murdered Christians. So you're like, integrity, murder, I don't know if you can make that. I think we can. Because again, integrity is about being honest, about being noble, about being humble, about being upright and trustworthy. It's not about being right or perfect. It's about not being two-faced. And that's what he was saying. Listen, you knew me as a child, and whether I was a Pharisee or whether I was a Christian, I always lived to my conviction. I didn't say one thing and do another. I didn't say something to your face and then double behind your back. I was who I was. I wasn't always perfect, but you can grab anyone in this room and they will testify that I live to the highest standards, to the highest righteousness, to the, to the utmost righteousness. I have always lived my life this way. You can trust what I say because you've seen how I live. And there is a lesson for every single person in here to live a life of integrity. He could defend his faith easier because why? He never dishonored his name, right? He lived with such honor, loyalty, and integrity that his faith also reached a whole new level of what? Trustworthiness. Paul's saying, you can trust my words because you've seen my actions. Have they been perfect? Absolutely not. But as a leader, I want to be someone who lives by integrity. And I see this, and I see that Paul, yes, he preached a lot, but he practiced a lot more. He practiced what he preached. You, you want to evangelize Christians in the house? You want to reach people and preach and, you know, reach your friends and your family and your neighbors? Live a life of integrity. Live a life of integrity in your marriage, and your kids will see that and it will bless them. Be a great friend, a loyal coworker, a humble worker, and friends and coworkers and neighbors will see that. This is why Paul writes in, in Philippians, verse one, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Guys, this is a big deal. Let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I, I'm there or not, he's like, whether you have accountability from me, Paul, or not, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let, live a life of integrity. Live in such a way that people want to follow you. Honor your commitments. Be a man and woman of your word and, and apologize when you get it wrong. Defending the faith first starts with your life, not just with your words. People don't want to hear a, a framed, basketed sentence about, you know, apologetics. They want to see a life that says, wow, there's something there. And Paul starts with that promise. He says, listen, you know what I'm saying is true because you've seen me live. Ask anyone in here. Bring them up. Let them testify. They will tell you the same thing. And then he keeps moving. He says in verse 6, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, notice how he never loses his humility and his honor here. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Verse eight, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Quick note here, Paul is, he is confronting 
King Agrippa with the faith. Like he is saying, hey, listen, you know this thing that we hold to? He's actually using that as a springboard for reason about, about the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, listen, I don't know why it's such a crazy idea that God could raise someone from the dead. Since Agrippa was to be an expert, right, in all the customs and questions and controversies, which, which he said already in verse, I think it was verse five or four or five, which have to do with all the Jews, he's playing off of that foundation, that understanding. Paul's actually saying, listen, in my heart and mind, I've remained a faithful Jew. But, he's saying, coming to know Jesus was an outgrowth of my faith from the hopes and promises we read in the Old Testament, like in the prophets, that's what he's trying to say. Verse eight would be like the mic drop moment in the movie. Like, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Like that moment, you know? Shut up. You had me at hello. Like those sort of, you know what I'm saying? Those epic liners where you're like, you're waiting for it and everyone in the room and then you want to say it, but you don't because you want to ruin the, the vibe. That's what happens here. He's saying, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises from the dead? Do you not know what the prophets say? Did our God not split the sea? Did he not make the sun stand still? Did he not bring manna from heaven for years after years? And yet, it's too impossible to conceive that he could raise someone from the dead? You see what he's doing here? He's playing off both sides. He's saying, listen, I don't know why you would consider this possible and this not. Why am I in trial here? And I think sometimes we can even, and I think we've, we've kind of spoke about that, that already in this series, so I don't want to get too far into that about, you've heard me talk about whether it be church hurt or this piece or intelligent design and those different arguments. Like, we always feel the onus is on us to prove when in fact there is a great sense of foundational faith and reason with our faith, and that's a beautiful thing. And so what he's doing here is this, and this is kind of his second point of masterclass moment here, is he's finding places of common ground. Because I think finding places of common ground can be more fruitful with non-Christians specifically than fighting over who has the higher ground, right? Like I think sometimes we get caught in this moment, well, what about this or what about that or what about this or what about that? And we get nowhere and we get angry, we get frustrated or it ends on Facebook with I'm signing off or whatever. <laughs> Don't argue on Facebook. He's using common ground to build a great argument that of course God could raise Christ from the dead. Of course he could. Because if he couldn't, then his arm would be too short. But God said in the Old Testament, is my arm too short? No, of course not. He makes the same case, you know, at every trial. He, he stands his ground, he makes a case, and then he tells a story, which Chris powerfully spoke about last week. And so here he does that, but there's something unique about this trial. Okay, it's really good, let's, let's read it. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus. This is verse 12 now. With the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road, and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Blazing around me and my companions, we all fell to the ground. And you've heard this story, it's in Acts 9. He's recounted it on every single trial to this point. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you will see, of what you will see of me. I almost started laughing when I said that because it's such a funny line to me. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
Another version of it is, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. That's a quote, leave me alone, okay? I don't know if you caught that. He doesn't say that in any of his other trials. That's not found in the Acts 9 version. This moment here, he's telling King Agrippa something new and unique to the story. He is saying, this is what was said to him. And it's interesting, in his response to Agrippa, he he vocalizes a new piece of information. And for us, I think it's important. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads was this Greek proverb. It was familiar to the Jews and anybody who worked or lived in agriculture, which many of them did. An ox goad was a stick and it had this pointed piece of iron on its tip. And it was used to prod the oxen when plowing. A farmer would prick the animal to steer it in the right direction. That's what a goad is. And so sometimes the animal would rebel, right? It wouldn't want to move or wouldn't do anything or be stuck in a spot. And all this would do was result in more Poking, that's it. That's all it would. In, in, in essence, the more an ox rebelled, the more it suffered because at the end of the day, friends, the goad wins, not the ox. And what Jesus said to Paul and what Paul repeats here in this trial is this. Agrippa, you don't get it. Why do you fight? Why do any of us fight this? Your rebellion against God is a losing battle. This is what Jesus was saying to Paul. He's like, what are you doing here? What, what do you think is going to happen here? You think I'm going to allow you to continue to move on this rebellion, this disobedience? No. It's hard for you to kick against the goat. It, you can continue to go, but there will be point after point after push after push. Friends, Jesus is saying, listen to Paul, listen, I'm going to begin to steer you in the right direction. I'm going to begin to push you in the direction you need to go for my name, for my mission for my purpose that I'm giving you. You're gonna change the world, but it's not in the way you think. It's in a completely different direction. And what he's saying here at his trial in his moment is, listen, we can, as people, continue to try and try and try in disobedience, but every single day, you're gonna live in hardship. Every single day, there's going to be difficulty. Every single day, there's gonna be this feeling, this sense, this spirit in you that there is more to life than this. That's why the Proverbs say, good judgment wins favor. This is Proverbs 13, 15. But the way of the unfaithful leads to their destruction. I think another version says, to hardship. Like, this is what he's trying to get at. And how much better is it to just humbly concede to God's voice, to his life and passions for you, allowing him full control, letting him lead you in everything you do. Because by resisting God's authority, we're only punishing ourselves. That's it. We're missing out on the life he's created us to live. And you can ask, if you're a skeptic in here, or you feel similar to this, where you're like, there is something weighing on my chest. You ask a Christian what really happened, and sometimes you'll get this response of what, you'll get details, but you'll get this sense of like, let me say from my own perspective, I just remember a weight on my chest being lifted. When you're so thirsty and you finally are able to quench your thirst. Like I wasn't thirsty anymore for the next thing or thrill or idea or concept. You finally find something that doesn't just fit, but is truly how you've been meant to live. It's like coming home for the first time and the last time. There's something so special and beautiful about salvation in Christ. And Paul is saying like, You can go and live and do and and walk as much as you want, but it's hard 
to kick against the goats. It's hard to keep beating your head against a wall and going nowhere. It's time to pick up from what you're doing and start following how good God is. And here's the beautiful thing about all this. This is what's wild. This is how gracious God is for the skeptic in the room. You still have a choice. Like you can have an encounter from heaven like Paul had, and yet you still have to choose and say, I will obey. That's why in verse 19, I'm gonna jump ahead really quick. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. He's basically saying, I had no choice. What do you, honestly, he's standing on trial. He's looking at those who were like refuting him, refuting him because he's preaching the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, listen, the experience I had on the road to Damascus was undeniable. Like undeniable, there was people there, in this case, he says, we, many of us fell. He's like, undeniably, God spoke. Jesus came down. He spoke to me. The evidence, which he points out in here, and he later, I think, in verse 20, he says, I'm just repeating the stuff Moses and the prophet said. The evidence is clear. It's, it's, there's, there's much of it. The evidence from our prophets is indisputable. Indisputable. The evidence is indisputable. The experience, undeniable. So my obedience is inexcusable. It's unmistakable, if you will. Whatever. Whether other a bull I can add, I have to do it, Paul says. I have to live a life worthy of the calling that he's put on my life. Because my experience, I won't deny it. The evidence is absolute. What else do you want from me? And I think, I hope, I pray that Paul's not the only one who feels this way. I know I feel this way. Come on, the experience that I have had with the Holy Spirit, confronting, convicting, and then giving me the freedom that I didn't deserve but I received is undeniable. And I will always continue to stand on that foundation. The evidence that I read, we have millennia of this, of evidence and things pointing to how Jesus was a real person who truly fought and died for you and for me. That is real, friends. The evidence is indisputable. And so my obedience to whatever God is calling me has to happen, has to happen. And I hope you feel the same way. I hope you feel the same way. And that's not just your story. And it's not just my story. And it's not just Paul's story. It's the story of Coastline Church. The experiences that have happened in this sanctuary, in this auditorium, and in other buildings too, for almost a hundred years come October, are undeniable undeniable. We stand on a millennia, like I said, of evidence that is unremarkable. Therefore, as a church, we take verse 19 with the utmost like it, it impacts us as a church. So then, we will not be disobedient from the vision from heaven that we've received. That's why we are not just a church, but we are a church that sponsors missionaries all around the world in places we don't even tell you about because it's so hard to get there. That's why we are a church that continues to invest in the next generation, sending 26 kids to Nanus, continuing to pour into youth ministries and youth pastors and youth workers and kids ministries and kids workers. That's why we're not just a church, but we're a church that plants churches. Amen? That's why at 10 a.m., Coastline West Hills met. That's why we do Alpha. This is why we do Freedom. This is why we do, again, Youth and Kids and Welcome Wagon and ESL. That's why we planted a college. That's why we preach every Sunday that Christ was crucified for our sins. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not something that you have done, but it is a gift from God. That's this church, friends. That's this church. 
we have a heavenly vision and anything outside of obedience is disobedience. I know it seems heavy and hard, but that's how we feel. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, I will not be disobedient. I will not stand quiet. I will stand trial after trial after trial in chains, continuing to share my story, the story of the gospel, because I will not stop. Because I will not be disobedient. I will continue to live in such a way that God has called me, not the world is asking of me. So then, King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all in Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn from God. He, he outlines his mission, his purpose. It's interesting, he continues to talk, but he says, God has helped me to this very day. The Messiah, he says that, you know, I'm not saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would say, that's verse 22, but then at verse 24, Festus jumps in. This is interesting. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You were out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane, he shouted. And he responds so calmly, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus. Again, with honor and respect. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. Again, he puts it back on the Jewish king. He says, I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Masterclass. Paul didn't ask Agrippa if he believed in Jesus. He actually asked, do you believe in the prophets? Because similar to Paul, he believed if you believe in the prophets and what the, what the prophets say about the Messiah to come, and then he, this, this whole piece about like it was not done in a corner, he's talking about Jesus Christ right now. He's talking about what has taken place with the death and the cross and the resurrection and all the churches being planted. He's saying, so you have the prophets, you have this which I know you know is taking place, and then he's kind of pulling them together because he wanted to connect Agrippa to what he already believed and what he should believe. And he's bringing it together. And we're so focused, I think, sometimes on presenting the message that we forget about the invitation. And I wrote this note in my Bible because I thought this was so good. There has been times where I know I have left conversations with people just being like, man, I nailed that. They wanted a lesson in apologetics and they got one, you know? And then I realized, did I ever even ask them did I ever invite them to just pray a sinner's prayer? Did I ever stop and just say like, hey, he loves you. So what are we waiting on here? Have I ever made that invitation? Because I think that's what Paul's, he's like, I know you do. do you? Like he's inviting Agrippa into this moment. And I want to do a better job of that personally. Because we have to ask, we've got to bring people to the point of a decision. And, and then, he, you know, Agrippa responds. He says in verse 28, and I am closing here. Do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Interesting. In another version, he says, um, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. And I love this, so humble, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, 
this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He's basically saying, I wipe my hands of this because it's going to Caesar with or without me. But if he hadn't, I know what my decision would have been. This is the only biblical record of a positive interaction between a, a Herodian king and Jesus and his church. This is it, right here. And as this trial closes and Paul is readying his heart to go to Rome, I can't help but think of King Agrippa being faced with such challenges and tensions. Because although Paul is for sure the main character, if you will, the tension lies with this Jewish king, this, this King Agrippa, being faced with such, again, like, does he surrender his life? Is he close? That word almost just like rang in my head all week. Is he officially tired of kicking against the goads? I think someone should put that on their alarm this week. Don't kick against the goads and only you'll get it. That was weird. I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. <laughs> think about Agrippa for a moment. He has the pressure of Festus, right? A governor, a man's man. I've got to make a decision. I'm sending him to Caesar. He's got his wife, who by the way, was his uncle's wife before he died and is also his sister. So he's in this immoral, incestuous relationship. So becoming a Christian is going to really change that dynamic. He doesn't want to bother his brother-in-law who's in charge and got a lot of pressure on him. And then he sees Paul. I think a man he admires. I think he's staring at someone who he knows experienced a heavenly vision, who changed his life, who changed the world, who loves so many people, who believes in a message of hope and redemption, not just for Jews, but for, for Gentiles as well, for all humanity, who despite being in chains even says, I am content in all things. Yet he's in prison. And I don't know if Agrippa wants to count the cost. Because there would be a cost to following Jesus here. He'd have to probably lay down some of his ego, probably lay down some of his riches, probably lay down some of his title and authority. There is a cost. And here, he's almost ready to give it up. And I wonder if some of us are in the exact same place. We feel almost ready, but you know what? Maybe next sermon when Andy gets back, that'll be a better one to receive. Or... You know what's funny? That wasn't even a joke. What I mean is that um, there's always a next time, right? That's what I'm actually getting. I'm, I was really being honest. I wasn't trying to be funny. <laughs> Maybe next week, the music will hit in a way that, that makes me want to receive. Maybe, you know what? Maybe in a couple weeks when I talk to my mom or my dad about something or I have some dialogue with some other Christian friends. Maybe in September when small groups start. Yeah, that's, that's when I'll be ready. Trusting Jesus, accepting his grace and love is the greatest decision you will ever make. Stop living on an almost. Stop kicking against the goat. Stop beating your head against the wall. Stop living a life of disobedience, of, of your own path and rebellion, because we both know where it leads. Destruction and hardship and heaviness. And you know who has to pull yourself out of that? You do, because you've left yourself in charge. You do, because you've made yourself God. When Jesus is right here saying, my cross, your freedom. My blood, your healing. Because he didn't almost go to the cross, church. Come on, somebody. He didn't almost go to the cross. He went to the cross. He died on that cross. He, he stayed there for three days, and he rose again, defeating death, so you and I could have a victory of peace and of hope, of life and life to the full. And so don't wait any longer. 
Don't wait. We wait to make decisions because we're scared or we're uncertain, but here is what I am certain of. It's that he loves you. He's died for you. And if you would repent and run to him, he has his arms wide open. He didn't almost go to the cross, church. He absolutely went to the cross. So don't beat your head up against the wall anymore. Make a decision that moves you into a direction towards Christ. Don't leave here almost ready. Leave here accepted, ready, chosen, loved, freed, healed, found. Please, please. And what's so interesting, and the team's coming, they can join me, we're gonna pray, is it's not just the people on the fence, it's not just the Agrippas. For many of us, we've been in Paul's situation, and we've almost been ready to share the gospel, right? We've almost been ready to tell a coworker or invite a coworker. We've almost been ready to pray over a family member who's going through a hard time but scared what they'll think. We've almost been ready to stand up for what we believe in. I just wanna draw a line in the sand today and I just wanna pray and hope that every single one of us would cross the line of the almost that's in our life and we would take this lesson from Paul that we would move forward and that we would whether we feel like we're in chains or not, we would never be scared to share the gospel. And for the first time, people in here would really receive the hope and peace that comes only from Jesus. Can I pray over you? Would you close your eyes all across this room? It's my heart to, that you would receive today. It really is. I hope you sense that. You know, in this series, we've talked about faith and love and hope and courage and doubt. And I wanna just pray over the person in here who feels like doubt is winning the battle. I wanna pray over the couple in here whose faith has been wavering, whose heart feels heavy. Jesus, you know every need in the room, our every need. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, for the man or the woman, the couple or the single, that they would know there is a God who loves them. Jesus, that there would be no more disobedience or continuing to walk in our own path, but there would be an acceptance right now of your gospel truth. And that is that you love us, you died for us, you sacrifice for us. There is a grace upon grace, a mercy upon mercy that they can receive today. Maybe in this room you felt like you didn't deserve it. Maybe you felt like you're not good enough, I'm not ready for it. That's not how the gospel works. You don't need to clean yourself up for it. You didn't deserve it in the first place. The heaviness of sin, while we were still sinners, the Bible said Christ died for us. So all across this room, for you, if that's you, if you need to make a decision today, you're tired of being on the almost, almost ready, and you are just ready to dive, for, dive face in, if you will, would you just posture your heart, your hands, and say, Jesus, I need you. You can literally repeat my words. You can stand on your breath. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand today. Just say a prayer. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm sorry for what I have done. I'm sorry for what I put on that cross. But Lord, I trust you. Come on, say it like you believe it. If that's you today, if you're making a sin, Lord, I choose today to be all in, not almost in. Completely yours, not maybe yours. I choose you, Jesus. Be Lord of my life. I repent of my sin and I run to your loving arms. 
pray that prayer. Sorry, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. I follow you the rest of my days. I choose you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you just cover this place right now in this moment? Be with the hearts that are receiving. Be with the families that need you. Lord God, I pray that we'd be people of integrity, that we'd live a life that is worthy of the gospel and worthy of what you have done for us. I pray, Lord, that we would, every person in here, especially the Christians, would not be almost ready to preach your gospel and share the word, but we would be totally ready today. So empower us, strengthen us, give us faith, like it was already prayed to by Pastor Chris, give us faith today, a new faith, a, a, a profound faith that has strength. Lord, I ask that we would be ready to share at any moment. And Lord, we pray that your gospel would continue to come into every life, every school, every workplace, every home. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you for your cross, Lord. We thank you for your healing, God. We thank you for your blood, Lord, and your sacrifice because it brings hope and healing and life and life to the full. And everybody said, amen. Come on, church.